what does he do? He cries out to God in his pain. He laments. What are you doing? Where, where are you right now? Why would you allow this to go on? Where, where are you, God? That, that's what's going on in the first couple of verses, four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. He cries out to God in his pain. And there are questions that, like, if we're honest, I think all of God's people, all Christians everywhere, whether now or in the future or way behind us, I think all Christians have had those questions at some point. God, what are you doing? Where are you right now? Why would you allow this to go on? Why would you allow things to play out this way for the glory of your name? What are you doing here? Where are you, God? And I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I've ever gotten an answer in that moment. Now, I've, I've found myself in countless situations where, well, after that moment, things became clear to me. And I saw God's hand moving. But I can say with, with pretty, pretty confident, I can say pretty confidently that I, I've never gotten a verbal explanation from God for how and why and what. How about you? But Habakkuk did. God, God says something special for Habakkuk, and Habakkuk writes it down so that we get to, to experience it too. But God answers him and says, oh, oh, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. In fact, in fact, I've been working all this time to raise up another empire. You know those bitter and hasty Chaldeans you've heard about? Yeah, yeah, th that, that's mine. I'm doing that. I'm raising them up, and I am going to use them to enact my judgment upon you. Have a great day, Habakkuk. Get ready. Oh, get ready, boy, because you won't even be able to comprehend. You won't be able to understand and wrap your head around all the great and awesome things that I'm going to do. My judgment is coming. Selah. God tips his hand to Habakkuk and tells him that he's going to judge his people, the nation of Judah, with another nation, a really, really evil nation to boot. That God's going to bring judgment upon Judah with an incredibly sinful people, a nation away. And this pricks Habakkuk's sensibilities. Maybe it does yours. I think it would be easy for, for us to get riled up about it. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Did I hear you correctly? Are you sure that's, that's what you mean? I mean, if God is righteous and if God is fair, I mean, shouldn't he punish the worst nation? I mean, yeah, Judah's got some problems. We've, we've got some sin, absolutely. But our neighbors, our, guys, our neighbors are wicked. I don't, know, I, don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen the Chaldeans. I don't know if you know who they are. I don't know if you've heard some of the, the rumors and the news that's coming across the border. But those guys, they're, they're not the good guys in the story. Yes, Judah has sin, but, but the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're the epitome of evil. What are you talking about? They're the bad guys. And compared to them, Judah's looking pretty great right now. Coming off kind of rosy. Would God actually, would he truly use an incredibly sinful people to judge 
let's be honest, are, are relatively less sinful people? Will God actually work that way? And so in our time together last week, we looked at how Habakkuk goes back to God with exactly that question. To be fair, though, it's really more of an accusation. It's a rebuke. God's plan seems out of bounds based on what Habakkuk understands about God's character and what he thinks about himself and his position before God. And so the tone that we saw last week was one of correction. It was one of reprimand. Habakkuk offers his rebuttal. Ah, no, no, we shall not die. That's not what's going on here, God. What are you talking about? You, you, I don't know if you, if you remember this, God, but you can't look idly at wrong. And that's, that's clearly wrong to me. And so some wires have been crossed somewhere. And so why don't you go ahead and try again? How about we, how about we, we replay this one and let you have another shot at it? Come on now. I mean, I know we got some problems, but the Chaldeans, they're the ones who deserve your wrath. That's his tone. Surely you won't let them get away with their nonsense. Yes, correct your people, but don't, don't use them. Don't you dare use them. If you're really just, if you're really loving, you'll deal with them and maybe leave us alone. That's Habakkuk's tone. That's exactly where we left him last week. Habakkuk challenging God's plan and waiting for a response. So let's pick it back up in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's read it together. I will take my stand, this is Habakkuk speaking, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me. So God gives him an answer. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. All right, so Habakkuk has this audacious moment, and he tells God that he's going to wait. He's going to basically hold his breath like a little child until God comes back to him with a satisfactory answer, right? That's the game we're playing, all right? And so he asked the question last week, and so we asked the question last week, how do you think Habakkuk's going to fare in this little exchange, right? Like, how do you think this is going to go for Habakkuk now that he's kind of stamped his feet into the ground and decided that he's going to wait right there until God gives him a better answer? I've got some ideas about how I would answer it if I were in God's position. How about you? Got little kids at the house. I've played this scenario out a couple of times. How would you answer? But God instead is gracious to Habakkuk. Way more gracious than I would be. And he gives them what I think is a gracious answer. So what does he say? It's happening. Oh, it's happening. Write it down, Habakkuk. 
Get out your tablet. Make it plain. I don't want anyone misunderstanding what I am saying here. Make it crystal clear so that everyone who encounters this, everyone who comes upon, upon what I'm saying will correctly fear what I'm about to do. Write it down. It's happening. My actions, they may seem slow to you, right? but don't think I've changed my mind. I don't change my mind, Habakkuk. That's what's going on here. You're small, Habakkuk. I'm working on a much larger scale here. I'm about to do every single thing that I said that I was going to do. I have made my promise, and I plan to keep my promise. That's what God says. See, Habakkuk can pretend all he wants, that he gets to sit on some kind of judgment seat over God. He can, he can go ahead and play that little scenario out in his head all he wants. He can puff up his chest. He can pretend to, to play that out. But the true judge, the one who judges the living and the dead, he has given his final verdict. It can't be undone. And there is no higher court of appeals to take it to. There is no but, 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 but. What about when God speaks, it happens. God's conduct is not submissive in any way to some external standard of righteousness. But rather, righteousness is defined by the conduct that flows out of the character of an infinitely holy God. In other words, we know what righteousness is because he reveals himself to his creation. We don't, def we don't define God's righteousness by an external righteousness. We define righteousness by what we see from God. It's backwards. And, and, I, and I get it. That, that's a massive theological concept to begin to, to try to work through. I, I would imagine that most people in this room even, especially most people in the world, have never taken the time to really kind of wrestle through the, the implications of that and what all that means. And so I know that bringing it up right now is probably going to leave some people's heads spinning. I, I really do get that. But the truth is, is that unless we press that point, we'll never understand exactly what's going on here. We're never going to be able to faithfully answer Habakkuk's rebuke. In order to really understand the weight of what's playing out here, we need to, to cross some T's and dot some I's, theologically speaking, to, to suggest that there's some kind of external thing from God or external system outside of God that he must be beholden to. It robs God of his godness. It makes that thing supreme rather than God. And so he must necessarily be over that thing or else he's not God anymore. And we saw some of this play out back when we studied the book of Romans together. God's justice, right? We, we said back then that we believe that, that we believe that God will one day perfectly punish sin because we understand that God, God to be perfectly just. We, we can have confidence that he will perfectly judge sin with justice because we see justice coming from him. But that's not some external justice that he's bound to adhere to. He, he doesn't have some higher ideal that he's got to go, well, guys, I'd let this one go, but there's this whole justice thing over there, and I've got a reputation to keep. That's not what's going on at all. 
He's not handcuffed to justice. He is justice. Justice is defined by God's good character. We know what justice is because God reveals himself. We know what justice is because God reveals himself. And if you're keeping score at home, you might be wondering right now, okay, but why do we all kind of instinctively know what justice is then? I mean, even those who don't have a relationship with God, even those who don't know who he is at all, maybe they even outright reject him. We also kind of have this deep core level sense of right and wrong, of what's good and bad, of what ought to be done in the world. I mean, there's a reason why Habakkuk isn't the only one in the room whose sensibilities are pricked when God says he's going to judge everybody. There's a reason that, that the hair riles up on the back of our neck and goes, wait, 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 what? Habakkuk's not alone in that. You and I all get a sense of that. So where does that come from? Well, the Bible's argument is going to be that that's in you because of who you were created to look like. The image of God, the image of your creator buried all the way down at the core of who you are, a law written upon your heart that harkens not only backwards to what we were created to walk in in the garden, but also harkens forward to what God promises to restore one day. It harkens to something. The Bible points to that longing, that, that core level understanding of right and wrong, of good and bad, of justice and injustice. It points to that longing for that to be fulfilled and says, yeah, God put that there. That's there on purpose. It's by design. And so what does all this have to do with Habakkuk, right? What does this have to do with Habakkuk? Habakkuk was wrong. We, we, sinful, we should say. Habakkuk was wrong, absolutely wrong, to assume a posture of judgment over God. God does not now, nor will he ever be responsible for answering to Habakkuk. It's nonsense. Habakkuk has no clout over the holy judge of the cosmos. He doesn't owe Habakkuk an explanation about anything. He doesn't have to justify himself or his actions to Habakkuk or anyone else or anything else in any way. He is the Lord. Habakkuk was dead wrong to assume that he was any kind of exalted position that no longer desperately depended on the mercy of God. But Habakkuk wasn't wrong about everything. Habakkuk was wrong about his posture before the Lord. He, he had a prideful moment as he's reeling from his understanding or trying to figure out what's going on, but Habakkuk wasn't wrong about everything. Habakkuk was absolutely right to believe that God will not sit back and look idly at wrong. That's an instinctual level thing he understands about God, and it's absolutely right. The Chaldeans deserve the wrath of God. They deserve God's justice. Habakkuk was sinful when it came to understanding his position before God. He needed grace like you and I and everybody else need grace before the throne. But Habakkuk was right to believe that God will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. He's dead right about that. God's law isn't paralyzed. 
It's not paralyzed. It, it, it might seem slow to us. It really might, but that does not mean that he is not working. We are small, and he's working on a cosmic scale. Write it down. Make it plain. He has made his promise. He plans to keep his promise. He is going to give justice to all. So would you like to know what God has planned for the Babylonians? He begins rolling that out in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay, so who is this his that we're talking about here? Well, just like at the end of chapter 1, we think that's either the king of Babylon or personification of Babylon itself. It could honestly be either one. And so while a prideful puffing up is definitely true of the nation as a whole, we're, we're beginning to deal with some more personal responsibility level things here. I, I think God's beginning to zero in on a specific person on the world stage, the king of Babylon. And if you, if you know your Bible well, then you know that the king of the Chaldeans, the king of Babylon, when Judah is eventually attacked and overthrown, is a guy you've heard of before, Nebuchadnezzar, right? We learn mo mostly about Nebuchadnezzar in uh, the book of Daniel. <laughs> if, if you grew up watching VeggieTales, you probably just called him King Nebi, right? Um, we learn most about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, but if God is talking specifically about him here, we learn that he's prideful and his soul is not upright. And then right on the heels of that, we get what might be the second most quoted verse in the letter. But the righteous shall live by what? His faith. Cue the gospel presentation, right? And for good reason. It, it's because it's, it's the gospel. The righteous shall live by faith. There, there are no righteous people in and of themselves. Our only claim to righteousness is an alien righteousness given to us by faith in the finished work of Jesus and his righteousness. And people get this wrong all the time, uh, but the gospel is no different in the Old Testament. People seem to have a, a bifurcated understanding of Old Testament versus New Testament when it comes to grace versus wrath. The, the gospel is the same no matter what part of the story you land in. All right? It's always the same. No matter what era we're talking about, you come to God by faith in God. Always. Through the finished work of Jesus. Whether we're talking about Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord or we're talking about pagan Abraham believing God and being counted to him as righteousness. Whether Old Testament or everything coming after it, the righteous shall always live by faith. And then Mr. Saved by Grace through Faith himself, the Apostle Paul, he seemed to really like this verse. And so he quoted it over and over again. He quotes it in Romans 1 and Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2. When Paul quotes it, though, he uses it as a positive example, as an active teaching for us to pursue that kind of faith. When God, though, <laughs> when God, though, uses it, the, the OG uses it in Habakkuk, he doesn't use it in the positive sense. Not to describe the king of Babylon. He's, a, he's saying that the king of Babylon is the exact opposite of that. He's not righteous because he does not live by faith. The righteous will live by faith, but God's getting ready to judge the one whose soul is puffed up. He's getting ready to pour out his wrath. 
So look at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. All right, so um, some people in the history of the church have pointed to this verse and tried to make the argument, try to make a big deal out of that wine statement there. Uh, they see it as an implicit command from God uh, to, uh, to abstain completely from wine. It's a traitor. It's always going to do you wrong, right? And so just stay away from it. There's no good in it. Just stay away from it, right? And so while there are other legitimate reasons to abstain, your conscience being first and foremost, all right, that's, that's, that's something that you should do for the glory of God if God leads you to that. This verse, though, is, is not on the list of good reasons. It has nothing to, to do with what that's talking about. To the Hebrew mind, to the Hebrew mind, wine is intrinsically linked to the party, to the celebration. The vast majority of the time when you see wine mentioned in the Old Testament, that's what they're talking about. To, to, to plant a vineyard is to be seen as, as, as the presence of security and safety. You're, you're at rest and at home, so plant your vineyard. To, to drink the wine from your vineyard is seen as, as an earned rest and getting to enjoy the fruits of your good labor. That's mostly what you see when the, the Old Testament talks about wine. And so, so why bring it up here? Why would God mention this as he's unpacking what he's about to do to Babylon and specifically the king of Babylon, right? Well, what happens when something puffs itself up? I mean, it may get bigger, but it's also hollow on the inside, right? It's fragile. Those of you who have been baking bread during a quarantine season, what happens after you let the bread rise? You punch it back down, right? That's the most fun part of bread making. You just punch the dough. It's, that's something I'd let my five-year-old son do because it's something he'd want to do, right? I get to punch the dough. Last week, we, Habakkuk pointed out how the Babylonians are living large. They're living in luxury right now. And I know it was a week ago for us, but God is answering Habakkuk's rebuke, right? This is all connected. He pointed out that the Habakkuk's, uh, that Habakkuk pointed out that the Babylonians are, are living large. They're living, uh, they're enjoying the good life right now. They're, and that luxury has been won off the broken backs uh, uh, of their neighbors through their wickedness and their cruelty. That's how they've gotten this luxury. But parties don't last forever. They don't. And as you might have experienced in your world, oftentimes when the party's over, you're left in a weird place. Bad place. That wine, it's a traitor. And they seem like the celebration may never end. But eventually the wine runs out. And it causes some damage. That good life that Babylon is living right now, it's puffed up. It's puffed up. It may look impressive from those outside. It may look mighty and magnificent from those who don't know what's going on. But God is getting ready to punch the dough back down. He's getting ready to pour out his wrath. And, and we see the same idea in the very next line. The, the structure here is similar to the Psalms. You've got couplets, all right? So two uh, thoughts that, that look different, two artistic thoughts that are saying the same thing but are said in different ways. All right? We see that all the time in the Psalms. We see that play out in here too, right? And so not only is the party a traitor, but his greed is as wide as Sheol, we're told. Sheol in the Old Testament is a poetic resting place for souls. And we, 
And the Bible gives us little glimpses of it here and there. We understand you know, little pieces about it from here and from here and from here. In Proverbs 30, we're told that it's a barren womb. A barren womb. In, in other words, you can work all you want, but you're never going to pretty it up. It's never going to flourish. It can never be made over. It's a wasteland, and it will always be a wasteland. The king's greed may be wide, which, by the way, is normally the case for kings. Even the good ones. The king's greed may be wide. It can be as wide as Sheol, but he can grab all he wants, but the hole will never be filled. Ever. The hollow will always be too big. So look what God says next in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make, uh, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will, spoil, uh, you will be spoiled for them. Excuse me, verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, uh, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Because shall not all these take up their taunt. The nations and the people that Babylon has been conquering all this time. One of these days the king... Babylon will eventually join them in Sheol. He's going to get his comeuppance. He, it's coming. They'll, they'll get their opportunity to taunt him back. There's not just death. In verse 8, we're told that the debtors come knocking. Go ahead, Babylon. Plunder all and steal all you want to. Go, just knock yourself out. But one of these days, a bigger, stronger nation is going to rise up and they're going to take it all away from you too. And that's not only how Babylon made themselves a big deal by picking off the, the little nations surrounding the Assyrian Empire. It's also, if you know your history, going to be their downfall when the Medes and the Persians join forces together and wipe them out. Babylon's going to fall the same way that they rose up. You'll come back around. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. All right, so the Chaldeans believe themselves to be untouchable, right? That was kind of their, their, their thing, and, and, and in some ways for good reason. Right? They're bigger and stronger than everybody else. They're, they're amassing mighty treasure. They built fortified cities, and they knew how siege warfare worked, and so they knew all the tricks of the game. They built their walls taller and wider than everybody else. Everybody was impressed with what Babylon was pulling off. But those lofty heights, man, it's just another thing to get puffed up about. It's just another thing to, to, to falsely believe that you've got security when you don't actually have security because it doesn't matter how big the walls are. God will just go ahead and use the walls against you. He's okay. Doesn't slow him down. You think your walls make you safe? No, I'll go ahead and use the stone and the woodwork to my advantage. They know who their creator is. They'll cry out to me. 
You do you, Babylon. I'm, I'm okay. Build your wall as high as you want. Sit on that loft like an eagle looking out of its nest. It doesn't slow me down. In fact, God's got a story or two about walls that the Babylonians may be interested in knowing about before they arrested them. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a, a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Verse 13, behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples are behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge uh, of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So th- th- there's re- way more in those lines than we have time to look into this this morning. I, I admit that, but God says, you think that you're building something amazing for yourself. You think that your glory is going to go out forever and ever because of what you are establishing for yourself right here. But listen, I will not let iniquity stand. Your, your, your talons, they were, they were built on blood. I, I'm not going to let that ride for very long. And so I'm going to use you to make a name for me. You may think that you're making a name for yourself, (laughs) but I'm going to use you and your puny little glory for my greater glory. I'm going to use you to make a name for myself. Babylon will ultimately remember for nothing more than serving my purposes. It will be for my glory, not yours, that covers the earth. My glory will be celebrated. My glory will be known. You will be forgotten. You'll be forgotten. And in verse 15, he turns up the volume. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 16, uh, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. All right, so let's call a time out there. All right, so nakedness here, it's all about shame. All about shame. And so uh, while God will allow uh, the Babylonians to be a tool that he uses to correct Judah, to bring shame upon his people, that shame will one day be reversed and be poured out on them. Because that shame has a shelf life for God's people. All right? There's coming a day when that will be undone and they will be restored and, and, and they will be walking in right relationship with their God. But <laughs> Babylon's not... They don't have that same promise. They don't have that same deal. It'll be worse for Babylon on that day because in that moment, their uncircumcision will be seen and proven. They don't have the marking of God's people. And in that moment, the whole earth is going to know it. God has a people. He may be correcting them for now, but Babylon, they are not his people They don't get the positive end of this. And while the promises of God exist on the other side of correction for Judah, that's not true for Babylon. They will be left exposed. They will be left undone. And so in the back half of verse 16, God says this, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. 
The violence done in Lebanon or done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. All right, so the cup here is the cup of God's wrath, right? All right, those of you who have a, a church background, you kind of immediately put those pieces together. But, but uh, the, the Babylon has their own tiny little cup that they're pouring out in all the little nations around them, right? They're enacting their, uh, they're enacting their power. They're enacting their judgment on all the, the surrounding nations, and they're exerting their influence. They're forcing their enemies to drink. Um, they're forcing their enemies to, to drink. But again, God is going to pour out his own wrath on the Babylonians, and it's going to be a lot worse for them. A, a lot worse. And we see this cup of wrath imagery all over the Old Testament. Right? We also see it in a couple of places in the New Testament, right? Uh, Jesus asks for the cup to pass from him in the garden. Go to, go to a good Friday service. You're going to hear that text, right? Let this cup pass from me. And I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that in that moment, Jesus is scared of dying. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I don't think Jesus is scared of dying. Yes, he had very human emotions, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think, I think Jesus is stressing in that moment because he understands more than anyone else who's ever walked this earth has understood just how big a deal the wrath of God was. I think in that moment, Jesus understands better than everybody else what he's walking into. And he's right to be terrified of it. He's right to be stressed out about it. But we also see the cup of wrath used in the book of Revelation, in chapters 14 and 16, uh, when God gives his final judgment on the reprobate. The cup of his wrath is poured out on sinners in that moment. And God says here in Habakkuk that he will pour out his cup on Babylon. And everything that they believe brings them honor, and everything they believe brings them glory, and everything they believe brings them security, and everything they believe brings them pleasure and comfort or safety or whatever else you want to list off. Everything that they pride themselves in, have accumulated to themselves, to themselves. God says, in that moment, I'm going to use every single one of those things to shame you and glorify me. I'm going to turn all of them around. And I'm going to use those as a tool that I undo you and magnify myself. They will be the source of your shame. Material and immaterial, God is going to use all of it to make an example out of them. So every little bitter and hasty act, God seems to be saying here that he keeps adding it to their bill. He's adding it to their bill. They're storing up wrath for themselves. All right, time to go home. What do we do with this? Right? What are those of us living in the New Testament age, how, how do we respond to God's word when he seems to be promising judgment, promising destruction on an evil people that we're a few thousand years removed from, Right? How in the world do, do, do people in this room or watching us online, how do we read this text and respond appropriately to God's word in this moment? What, 
what in the world do we take from this? I think there are actually a few possible options available to us. It may, it may seem daunting, but I think there's actually several options available to us. One, I think we could be thankful for, and I think we can celebrate the difference between the correction of God for his people and the wrath of God that he gives to his enemies. Like, I think the church ought to celebrate that more often. We walk in correction, not, not wrath. We notice this, pay attention to this, celebrate God for this. I think secondly, we, we could also celebrate that God eventually vindicates his people, right? Despite our sin, despite our shame, our promise-keeping God will one day bring justice to those who have suffered injustice. Count on it. Despite our ineptitude, and we have more than our share, despite our ineptitude, he will continue to be our God and we will continue to be his people. That is good news. Good news. So we could do those first two options. A third option, I think it would be to celebrate the coming vindication of the Lord's righteousness. He promises nothing less. The vindication of his holy and good character. And, and, and in a world that's, that's inclined to think that God's law is paralyzed, that, that God doesn't care about this or is incapable of acting upon that, he's not idle. It may seem slow to us. It really may, but it's not because he's changed his mind. It's because he's operating on a different scale than we are, and he's going to one day vindicate himself. We can lean into that and celebrate that. If it seems slow, don't worry. Just wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And each of those options is an appropriate way, I think, to respond to God's word this morning. But, but listen, I think God has blessed us in a special way here, or at least in our church family. I, he's given us a lot of really smart people. He's got a, given us a lot of people who love their Bibles and are, and are chasing deeply after uh, uh, having their world and their worldview shaped by God's word. And we're leaning into that. And God has blessed us in massive, massive ways. And because of that, I mean, I really think that th- that... The fourth option is probably the wisest thing for us to lean into today. And to do that, we need you to turn with me to another place in the Bible, to Romans chapter 5. Turn there just real fast. We're not going to be there long. Romans chapter 5. So the default assumption, I think at least for most of us, definitely for myself, The default assumption whenever we read the Old Testament is to immediately identify ourselves as God's people, right? To put ourselves in the the blessed and cherished and deserving good things category because of God's promises and to point at all the bad guys in the story as everybody else, right? I know I do that when I read the Old Testament. I'm guessing probably most of us do as well. Um, And so the the Jews, or in this case Judah, when we're reading through Habakkuk, we, we... and kind of instinctually go, yeah, yeah, we're the, we're the group that's God's people, and then those dirty Babylonians, they, they deserve God's wrath, right? They're the bad guys in the story. But unlike the Jews in the Old Testament, neither you nor me nor anybody else I personally know were ever born into that relationship. We didn't get there by birthright. And so in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is going to attack this kind of logic in verse 6. 
says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God. So let's call time out there. All right. So what's the big deal about this and how is it connected to Habakkuk? I think it's really easy, easy for us to accept and to celebrate that Jesus came to save people who can't help themselves who were too weak to, to do something about their problem. Yay, God stepped in. At a boy, God. All right? he, he is good, he is gracious, and he is loving and kind to those who are weak. Yay, God. Yay, God. I mean, even if you don't do the religious thing, you look at that and go, yeah, I like that God. He's a good guy. I think I'd hang out with that God. Learn more about him. But then in Verse 10 happens, and God drops the hammer. For if while we were, what's that word? Enemies. JB referred to that when he was praying earlier. If if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So get out your tablet, make it plain. Jesus died to reconcile himself to his enemies. Full stop. That's the gospel. He died to reconcile himself to his enemies. And so while it's easy for me, incredibly easy for me, to put the bitter and hasty Chaldeans, those nasty and terrible, those vile Babylonians, into the category of enemy, I usually, I tend to forget to put myself in that category. I belong in the enemy category. So do you. So does everyone you know. I belong, by default, in the category of enemy. Yes, the Babylonians completely deserved the wrath of God for their sin, but so did I. So did I. And thanks be to our God. He is a king who pursues those who are far from him. He is a king who reconciles himself, joyfully, willingly, lovingly reconciles himself through his own death to his enemies. He sent his son, the eternal son of God, Jesus, to soak up the wrath that was owed to you. He died on the cross to make full and final payment for sin. And he was raised again from the dead uh, because his righteousness was enough to spare. He was vindicated in that. So if if you're here this morning, you're you're watching us online this morning, and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, not a Christian, he calls on you right now to respond to him in repentance and faith, to to trust his finished work on your behalf and submit to him as king and lord. And you can do that this morning. You can do that. You you can respond to the call of 
Jesus. You can, you can do that wherever you are. You don't need me. You don't see, need some earthly mediator or priest or preacher or whatever. Jesus wants to give you himself. You don't need a pastor right now. But listen, I'd love to be one for you. I'd love to talk with you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. You don't need me, but that doesn't mean we can't talk. In a moment, where I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be a, a time for given to you to respond. I'll, I'll be down front here for those who are in the room and they want to talk. If you're watching us online, write in the comments or email me or one of the other 10,000 ways we've given you to contact us. Get a hold of me. We'll talk. I like meeting in the Wendy's parking lot. We can do that. But what about for those of us who are already followers of Jesus? What about those of us who were in the category of enemy? But through no merit of our own, but only through faith in the finished work of Jesus, we've been moved from the category of enemy into the category of son and daughter of the king. How do we respond to God's word this morning? The same way we always do. We repent of sin and we press into the goodness of God. And this week, though, I think that pressing in looks like pressing into what he's called us to do. We go after as many Babylonians as possible, calling them to be reconciled as we have been reconciled. That's our game. We call the other Babylonians to kneel at the cross like we have. Call them to change their allegiance and to submit themselves to the good king. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you to begin putting action step to whatever God is stirring in your heart. But maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe you need to, to be obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe you need to, uh, to find some way to serve around here. Maybe it's to, to join this church family, whatever it is. Uh, however God is calling you to respond. Whoever you are, however God is calling you. Oh, let's respond as a church family this morning. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for being a God who rightly sits in the heavens, who will judge the living and the dead, who corrects your people, and in will no way let the guilty go unpunished. But you've also made a way where there was no way. You gave yourself. You sent your son to pay a debt that I could not pay on my own. And so God, help us help us lean into that this morning. For those who who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know this morning? Would you call people out of Babylon and into your kingdom? And God, for those of us you've already called out, would you give us an urgency this morning for our fellow Babylonians? rightly deserving your wrath, in desperate need of your grace. Drive us out of here 
for the glory of your kingdom. God, help us respond well. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.